The Queen's Jewish Link presents the Jewish Living Podcast, the show that examines the many facets of Orthodox Jewish life. Here's your host, Izzo Zwerin. And the days of yore shall return. In many communities across the country, we have begun to reopen, even if it's ever so slightly. By the time you listen to this podcast, you may have already participated in the Backyard Minion, even one sanctioned by health officials, rabbinic authority, and government. Let's not kid ourselves. We're not out of the woods just yet. But we're certainly in a much better position than we were a month ago. With that in mind, there are a number of aspects to reopening that are unique to our listeners. So we're going to go through them from a medical point of view. And with me to do that is someone who knows a thing or two about messaging to the From community. My name is Blima Marcus, and I'm a nurse practitioner in New York City. Blimi has a wealth of knowledge about dealing with skepticism from the Orthodox community, especially with her Vaccine Task Force and MS Initiative, where she explains the virtues of vaccines to skeptics and why they aren't the demon monsters some believe them to be. We'll discuss the safety concerns around fast-track vaccines, how shuls can safely reopen, camps, schools, social pods, and so much more. One bit of admin, though. In the middle of the discussion, we went pretty deep into the weeds of combating anti-vaxxers, and we decided to cut that part of the conversation as it wasn't exactly the topic at hand. However, it was really fascinating, so we'll add it to the end of the podcast after the credits roll. If you're interested in hearing about some of the ways Blimi and her team help to educate others, please stick around after the music ends. So, Blima, thanks for joining me this week. Uh, first, uh, I was introduced to you as Blimi. So, Blima, Blimi, which one are we doing today? Uh, they're both fine. Uh, friends call me Blimi. I'll let you do that one. All right, Blimi. All right, that means I'm a friend. Terrific. Yes, sure. All right. So, a lot of what we're going to be discussing today is about a prospective analysis on COVID and the from community. And I'm going to caveat this by saying that you're coming at this from a medical side, not yep. a rabbinic side. So absolutely. All right. So we're not we're not replacing your 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 local rabbis. We're not doing that here. We're just talking about strictly from a medical standpoint and how we can all keep ourselves safe. Fair? Absolutely. Yes. Great. So firstly, how have we as a community been hit, especially uh, when compared to other communities? Not just like, oh, the Jewish community was hit hard, but where are we on the scale of our community versus other communities in New York City, per se? So I'm afraid I can't give you a great answer, and I'll tell you why. Data emerges really slowly. And to really understand uh, specifics, such as a very specific community, such as, you know, the various from communities, um, you also need to wait for the data to be broken down and stratified to truly understand if there were or were not differences. So a lot of the data emerging is zip code data, which is uh, kind of confusing because in a lot of communities, Jewish people are not the only people living there and ultra-Orthodox people live side by side with neighbors. So Williamsburg um, has, I don't, I can't give you the exact number, but 50-50 or even heavily weighed more in favor of the non-Jewish people in that zip code. So looking at uh, zip code data for Williamsburg is going to be um, confounded by all of the other people in that neighborhood who may have been socially distancing more than hypothetically the Hasidic community. So the data that's emerging is coming out initially by zip code. What that's telling us is that the Haredi communities are not on that list of heavily affected areas going by COVID tests, which are the nasal swabs, uh, or going by death rate. That's A. B. What I have been seeing, and again, I am waiting for more information before I come to any conclusions, and I urge other people to do the same thing, because I have seen people saying that we've definitely been hit harder. I've heard people saying we've been hit the same amount. I have been looking at antibody numbers, which are disproportionately higher in the community. And I'm not talking about raw numbers, I'm talking about percentage numbers, you know, uh, parts of a whole. So for example, New York City uh, seems to have uh, infectious rates of 19%. New York State is 12%, uh, and the Hasidic communities, um, large medical centers in Bar Park, Williamsburg, and Crown Heights are hovering between 60, and today I've seen 78% oh, wow. for Crown Heights. Yeah, and again, um, I don't think that these numbers are sh should be taken as the word of God, because we don't know um, 
if those numbers are always accurate. For positive antibody tests, we know that it's best to take two antibody tests to determine that you're actually positive for antibodies. So there's always things to keep in mind when looking at infectious rates and death rates. Um, for example, a lot of people have been talking about the death rates in the Frum community, which are somewhat on par or even lower considering how populated we are in the Frum community. I think we need to wait and see how that's stratified. Um, when we compare older people, are we still within that same range or are we, did we do a little worse? Um, are there other factors? I know that in general, health outcomes are always much worse among people of color, the Black African American community, Hispanic Latino community, poorer communities. So those communities will always have worse numbers, which is a huge health disparity in general in the United States. And we also know that Hasidim and a lot of other uh, sects in the Orthodox Jewish community have really good access to health care. Do they always follow, you know, primary care or preventive care health recommendations such as mammography or vaccination or getting your colonoscopy sometimes? That's a separate discussion. But in terms of health outcomes, they really do um, have good access to health care, you know, and they're very interconnected and help each other in that way. So we are likely to see lower death rates possibly because they might have better care the entire time. They're more likely to have primary care doctors. So I know I didn't really answer your question, but there's a reason for that because I don't want to give you any fake information. What I am telling you is that it seems like our numbers are kind of uh, in the same ballpark as the non-Orthodox communities. Antibody numbers are very far out of that ballpark. I don't know yet what that truly means for us. And I think we need to keep waiting, keep watching the numbers and not make assumptions. We have to follow the data. We can't make the data follow us. So you mentioned that one of the one of the health disparities is is income level. Um, Definitely. And my my one semester of graduate school epidemiology mm -hmm. tells me that these confounding variables would be interesting to compare the the income levels of zip codes because zip codes it doesn't give Absolutely. you necessarily data on who from those zip codes are more likely to to contract the disease, but the zip codes do give you a good sense of income level. So I would be interested to see if the heavily populated Jewish zip codes are comparable to the other populated non-Jewish zip codes that are that fall within the same income bracket. I think that's also really interesting. And I was talking to the director of nursing of one of the large uh, from healthcare organizations, which tested 7,000 uh, from patients to date and found a 58% antibody rate among that high number of patients. And uh, I said to him, oh, he told me, he said, I should really break it down um, by age. I should break it down by um, income level. And I said, even by ethnicity, because they do serve a small uh, a small population that are non-Jewish. Right. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an FHQC. Uh, FQHC, yeah. FQHC. I always mess that up. It's that's an right. FQHC. So they do serve non-Jewish people, but that's really a small minority. And I did tell him, I said, let's do it by ethnicity. You know, if, and he says, I'm not sure if we accurately record that. So, um, and I told him, I said, you know, maybe we should do a descriptive analysis. That would be really interesting. So that is really what I'm waiting for before I jump to conclusions. I think it's fair for reporters to keep reporting on emerging numbers um, and that's why I've been sharing the antibody numbers that I've been getting. But I think people should be really careful to take that information and realize it's part of a larger scenario and that it's probably going to be changing and shifting as we learn more about um, why some people were affected more heavily, why some people were not, uh, you know, does diabetes play a role in this? It likely does. And I think there's a very high rate of diabetes in the Orthodox Jewish community. Then again, there's a really high diabetes rate in the Hispanic community and the right. African-American community. So maybe it does even out. I think there's so many factors at play here that it would probably be foolish to um, make any really big assumptions at any time. Right. So uh, as you mentioned, FQHCs, that's where I've spent most of my career. Uh, mm -hmm. For those listening, a federally qualified health center. It's basically a clinic that aims to give services to the lower served uh, communities. And that's actually where I met you the first time. Um, I don't know if you remember this about a year that's ago, right. That's right. about yes. a year ago or this time when we first started doing this podcast, we had intended to go and record an episode uh, with Blimi at one of these uh, FQHCs where you were educating providers on how to educate patients on the importance that. of vaccination. And I was also providing the science behind it. I right. actually never tell people to go and get vaccinated. I give you the information and kind of uh, help you make that decision for yourself based on accurate information. Right. So you uh, have the vaccine. Yes. You have the vaccine task force, and that's what. That I don't know how that's going these days, but I want to bring that up because sure. we're probably going to be entering a whole new stage of propaganda against the vaccines, especially if a vaccine comes out much more quickly 
than had initially anticipated. This is actually something that I've been worried about myself. So I want to know what your thoughts are. So we were told initially when this started coming out February, March, it'll take about 12 to 18 months to come up with a vaccine. That's usually how long it takes. I'm now seeing reports that there might be one ready as early as October. Those types of things, that's when you're cutting out the turnaround time by half from, from 12 months at minimum to now six months, that sets off a flag to me. Um, mm -hmm. What are you going to be focusing on when that comes out uh, and people bring up this issue of how can we trust a vaccine that we were told that was going to come out so much further down the line and it's already out now? That's a really good question, and I've been getting it from a lot of people. Um, I think there's a few things to keep in mind. First of all, do you know what the usual timeline is for brand new vaccine development? I, until that you asked me that question, I was assuming 12 to 18 months. 13 years. 13 years. That is, okay. That is, yes. that is much longer so when than that. Exactly. So when people say, oh, vaccines are just big pharma and their turnaround time and they just produce them and produce them and produce them. No, not exactly. It actually takes 13 years from when you start from scratch because you're going to do preclinical trials. Then you're going to have to get approval for human trials. And there are three phases of that. So that's phase one, phase two, phase three with human volunteers. And each phase gets larger and larger with more people added to it as you know it's safe and now you're checking if it works. So it's very complex. Then you apply for licensure. Um, so this is, in general, an average of 13 years. Um, I think the HPV vaccine took a few, like two or three years less. And people who are critical of the HPV vaccine say, see, it was fast-tracked. I'm like, no, it still took 11 years. That's a long time. So yes, when people say, why is this going to take so short? Is it safe? Are they bypassing safety mechanisms? Here's my answer. First of all, during the SARS epidemic, which we've had a few strains of coronavirus uh, pandemics or, or epidemics or outbreaks in the past, scientists have already begun working on vaccines at those times. So what they are doing is building on existing data. Okay, they are not starting from scratch. They have done a ton of work in the meantime beforehand. So what they're doing is simply building on a lot of work that they've already been spending years working on and refining, and they're trying to use that information. Okay, so that's A. B, and this is kind of a common sense thing, with the entire world watching, do you think that the pharmaceutical companies would risk putting out a dangerous vaccine and having people get unwell from them or developing side effects from them? It's actually sometimes the safest time to come out with a vaccine rather than put one out in the middle of a year when there's nothing interesting going on and people might show up at their clinics for their well visits and be introduced to a new shingles vaccine or introduce their children to a new polio vaccine when there's very little uh, PR about it. Right now, the coronavirus vaccine is dominating the news. Everyone is watching this carefully. Scientists, physicians, and all of the lay people. So people are worried and it's very understandable. Um, I think what's really important to know, and this goes into talking about vaccine safety in general, what vaccines do is give you a fragment of a disease to train your body to recognize it so that you can be immune to it without getting sick and dying. And people are saying, well, how are we gonna get back to normal if we don't get a vaccine yet, if it's not gonna be ready by October? And I am not an expert on where the development is up to. That's not what I've been focusing on. I've been focusing more on community health the last two months here. So this is not my perfect area of expertise, but I do know a lot about vaccines in general. Here, here's how it operates. You can either get herd immunity if an entire community gets sick and recovers. Then that virus can no longer replicate and infect someone because your body won't allow it to get a foothold in your community. That's fine for infections that are not very dangerous and doesn't have a high death rate, you know? So theoretically, mumps, which is not a great disease at all, and I highly advocate vaccinating for it because it does come with complications, the death rate is not high. Right. So theoretically, if everyone gets the mumps and they get some level of immunity, that's fine. The death rate here is too high with coronavirus. It's not as high as we initially thought, and that's great news. Initially, people were saying there's a three to 5% death rate. Right now, um, actually, since March, I've been saying that the death rate is likely to be one to 2%. 
the latest numbers I saw is 0.8 to 1.5%. Right. So let's use a 1% as right. our number or 1.2%, right? That is still way too high. That is a huge, huge, huge number. And we know we've already lost 100,000 lives in the United States. Um, and that's only in two months. The surge is now heading to other cities and other states. Alabama is overwhelmed. Georgia is overwhelmed. These are rural areas. People will continue dying at really high rates if we allow herd immunity to work, okay? So that is why relying on herd immunity is not an option for a disease that's killing people. So the other alternative is a vaccine, all right? So my, my favorite thing that you guys did when I, when I went to that, the, the vaccine task force meeting um, yeah. was when you explained to uh, the vast conspiracy theorists who think that all the vaccines are some sort of a, of a conspiracy on the part of the pharmaceutical companies that you said, well, did you ever consider that all these diseases are on the, are, are on the conspiracy theory on, on, the, on the part of the Chinese? And then that, <sighs> and then that got them to then say, oh, maybe you're right. And then to, to yeah. the vaccine. Yeah. Well, I, I feel like that would be a very strong argument this time. It probably would. It probably yeah. would. And, you know, conspiracy theories come out of come out of nowhere. I mean, I, I like to think that I can really understand other people's thoughts, but sometimes the uh, trying to figure out how people can truly buy into a theory that every health care system in every country across the globe and all the scientists, all the physicians are all in cahoots about something to endanger their own citizens. It, it really doesn't yeah. make a lot of sense. And when they talk about the pharmaceutical aspect, that just makes even less sense because preventive healthcare is never worth it because it's always more worth it to treat someone for a disease if you're from the pharmaceutical side, right. all right? If our entire population was not uh, vaccinated with the MMR, all children age five and under would get the measles at some point. And a very large percentage of those would require hospitals for supportive measures. I mean, we had dozens of children in the hospital, 20 in an ICU, and that was only during last year's small outbreak where we had a, a subset of a community that doesn't vaccinate. So if the entire country wouldn't vaccinate, the pharmaceutical companies, what they would be earning in income from ill people would outweigh absolutely any kind of income they earn on giving everyone a one-time, or in this case, a, a two-time vaccine. So these are things I think people are not aware of. Right. So from a financial standpoint, the pharmaceutical companies would rather patients sick, just from a, just from a, just for, just from a from a dollar perspective. Dollar perspective. Yes. Absolutely. And I think there's just one more thing that I always find interesting, and when I share this with people, I think I kind of blow their minds. But there's a theory that pharmaceutical companies will give doctors incentives to vaccinate your children. Hmm. That is actually not true. It is the health insurance companies that will on occasion, and most providers I've spoken to are still waiting for their checks, but there's this, there's this wellness incentive program. Health insurance companies do not want you to get sick, all right? They want you to pay your premiums and they don't want you to get sick and land in the hospital with a $30,000 hospital because you got tetanus or right. that's closer to a million dollars actually. Um, they don't want that. They want you to stay well so that they can take your premium and not have to pay out. So what they do is incentivize a lot of healthcare providers and say, if you can get your patients to stop their smoking habits or engage in weight loss or manage their diabetes and get their blood pressure down, we will reimburse you for keeping them healthy. Right. And, and vaccinations and, fall into that category because you vaccinated those, all your kids, right? Exactly. And for those listening out there, that's actually what I do for a living. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. That I actually my, have no idea. That is literally my job. I, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the DISRIP program, which is targeted at reducing hospitalizations and readmissions for the same purposes. Um, oh, I patients. love that. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, well, yes, it's well, over you now. You mean pre preventing like... Uh, 30 day and 60 day and 90 day readmissions. Exactly. Yeah. The Medicaid that's, that's reimbursement stuff. That's exactly my job. Love so it. that's what I do uh, on a daily basis. And, and, and yes, we meet with insurance companies all the time that are also uh, reimbursing us for, for exactly what you said, for getting patients better, getting patients off of their chronic pain medication, their, their, all, their, all their chronic condition stuff is, is added incentive to us. Exactly. So would you say it makes sense for health insurance companies to mandate vaccines if there was any reason to believe that they were causing chronic illnesses in people down the line that they now need to shell out for. Absolutely not. There's no, there's right. no real incentive for that. Do they want to be paying pulmonologists right. for that, asthma and right. allergic issues, right? Yep. Like they, they really don't, they want you home and well and not being, exactly. not seeing physicians that now they need to pay for, Yep. which to it, me, I think that's probably the strongest proof that vaccines are actually safe. 
The only yeah. accurate conspiracy theory I think you can get is that it's a conspiracy by the insurance companies to keep you healthy. It's and, an awful uh, conspiracy. I'm, I'm okay with that conspiracy. <laughs> I'll and, take and you it. know what? That's an accurate conspiracy. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so exactly. let's focus to the future of what of what COVID is going to be doing to us in in uh, in the coming weeks, months. I don't know if we'll get to years, but let's say weeks and months. So. Here in Long Island, I live in Long Island. I know you, okay. live in, you live in the five boroughs, but here in Long Island, up in the Muncie area, we've already hit our six standards that we needed to hit in order to begin the reopening process, according to New York State uh, law, according to Governor Cuomo. I, I can't really speak for uh, listeners who are out of state. I apologize to you. I don't know all of the state's requirements. Um, I do know New York, and I do know New Jersey has already started uh, already a week ago coming out. Uh, I do know, though, that New York City has not yet officially started coming out. They still are only on four of the six required metrics. So you're seeing all of a sudden because of, I guess, a combination of what President Trump has said and how Governor Cuomo has been kind of been more relaxed on some of the rules, you're seeing starting a lot of pop-up mignonim um, yeah. going all around <laughs> along. Now, some communities, mine included, um, have issued precise guidelines based on how the uh, on, on how the medical community combined with the rabbinic community has decided what to do. For instance, in my community, we are waiting two weeks. So we're not going to have any backyard minyanim that are sanctioned by the shuls until after Shavuos. We're recording this before Shavuos. This episode's not going to come out until after Shavuos. Okay. Um, but we're not going to have any any sanctioned. I'm not saying that people aren't going to be doing it, but mm-hmm. we are not going to have any sanctioned minyanim uh, in people's backyards until two weeks after, literally today, that we're recording it on the 27th. So first question the importance of having rabbinic and medical personnel on the same page, um, oh, where where, oh where they are, where they're, where they're really in cahoots. Now, I just told you about my community, but yep. that happens to be we're a pretty homogenous Orthodox community where we kind of follow one authority, not just one rabbi, but also one organization above that. Other communities don't have that. So first of all, the importance. Second of all, what do you do if you live in a community that doesn't have one set position? Oh goodness, that's a very loaded uh, question. And let let me start with the first point. I think you make a strong point by saying that you're a homogenous community with um, kind of a good leadership that seems to have come out with guidelines. And I've seen that come out of more modern communities over the last week. I've seen that come out um, actually in Crown Heights. I saw a set of guidelines that were put together by physicians, a group of physicians that got together who want to be really careful because Crown Heights, unfortunately, had so many people that they lost. I will say that Crown Heights is a very homogenous community. I know, I know. (laughs) So there is basically one authority in Crown Heights. I know, I know. I I was so happy. But so you know what, though, the, 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 the medical society in Crown Heights, I wouldn't say is necessarily that homogenous. It's, okay. I, don't, I don't know that they have a massive cohesive group, but they do have something called the Gedalia Society, which is kind of a, a medical outreach education organization. And I think that after what happened in Crown Heights with um, not a great start off to social distancing, and I kind of wrote about that on Facebook, I was horrified that a friend of mine told me that she was walking in the street with a mask and a friend of hers waved from far in mid-March and said, don't come close, I have coronavirus. Now, A, everyone should be home regardless, social distancing, but B, she should have been under quarantine. And, and it seemed that there was a lot of laxity very early on, but then unfortunately they, they had like a mass loss of life and a lot of illness really quickly. And I think then they really became a lot more compliant and adherent. But I think because of that, the medical providers in that community came together and decided to just be very, very clear about what their recommendations are moving forward. And I'm pretty sure that that's going to be very helpful to all the smaller shuls that want to start opening up. Um, We're not seeing anything like that in the Hasidic communities, because like you said, it's not really homogenous. Every Hasidic sect has their rabbi, and they really don't all defer to one larger umbrella organization. Um, We can start talking about how they theoretically could be convinced to defer to a larger umbrella organization, but we're not going to go there right now. so what, what I'm seeing here in Borough Park, for example, are shoals coming up with their own rules. And I, I'm honestly taking reports from my husband, who is in the know. I don't exactly know what's going on in shoals, although people are always sending me reports because they think I need to know what every shtiebel is doing. So I'm getting a sense of what is going on. Um, and what it seems to me, and I, I may be wrong, 
is that the larger, larger shoals, the huge Bate Midrash and Bells has a humongous shoal, right. Babov, Satmar, they're being very careful. Okay. I don't, I don't know that they're following the government's guidelines or that they're government, uh, following the OU's guidelines, which are very clear and like your community advocated a two week wait as well. Right. They advocated no shoals opening until we've seen if our first miniature baby step of opening has resulted in more fatalities or a lot of cases. So that's the OU's guidance, which I'm so happy exists. Um, but these shoals are being pretty careful. My husband said that there's a guard outside the Sotmore shoal, which he prefers to Davin Chakras in. He hasn't really been going and I've, you know, had my eye on him. But um, he did say there's a guard there um, who will make sure you're masked. He'll make sure you're gloved. You need to uh, put on Purell before you enter. Your mask must remain on. There are uh, papers taped to different seats where you're not allowed to sit to ensure distancing, to ensure people are not sitting near them. And there's a guy who's in charge of all this and they'll throw you out if your mask is not on. Um, you're not allowed to walk around. You know, sometimes people will walk as they dive in. They're, they're being strict about that. So coming from a place where there has never been a concept of implementing hygiene rules or any kinds of rules in a shul, I'm happy that they're at least instituting a lot of common sense effects to reduce spread. Could it be better? Absolutely. It could, it could still be closed for another two weeks. Right. But I also believe in harm reduction. Okay. We know that people will continue to engage in behaviors that are probably not safe. Let's at least hope they're taking great strides to prevent it. I also know that Bubba, who lost a ton of um, community members to the illness and to death. Um, and I actually just saw a tweet that said that uh, when there was a drive in Bubba to check their antibodies, 78% of the people that showed up tested positive for antibodies. Um, they do not let in people younger than age 13. Mm -hmm. They do not let in people age 65 and older. Do I know if they turn a blind eye if that happens? You know, possibly. But they're being really careful about not allowing people to linger, about not allowing people to sit near each other. So what I'm seeing is that the big shoals in Borough Park, at least, are trying to put some semblance of rules into order. I don't know what's happening in Williamsburg. Um, I certainly don't know what's happening in the Litfish community. I, I, I like to hope that they're being really responsible. Um, but I have to say that although the OU put out guidelines, um, that's sometimes viewed as not as right-wing as Aguda, for example. And I wish right. Aguda's guidelines would have been a lot more stringent um, and clear because it's a time of confusion for absolutely everyone. People don't know what antibodies means. Doesn't mean, you know, does it confer immunity? They don't know um, if masks are actually effective. They don't know the benefits of social distancing. You know, people just don't truly know what works and what doesn't work. And sometimes the providers don't really know. But in this case, we need to err on the side of caution. So I feel like really specific rules and a lot of clarity and also really strong wording. I mean, this is a life and death situation. I feel like that would that could possibly go a really long way. And I would have loved to have seen, you know, that kind of guidance right now. So I know you mentioned the OU and, and the Aguda. I'll also mention the RCA who also came out with the, yes. with the two week guidelines. Uh, that that, was, that, was that in conjunction with It was in conjunction with the yeah. OU, but- uh, that, OU, I'm sorry, yeah. With the OU, yeah, they were in conjunction. Yeah. They, 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 they came together on that one, uh, which yes. they often do, but I, I yes. wanted to throw the RCA out there, especially because we had no, uh, no, Robin Mark you're... Dratch from the RCA as a, uh, as a guest Absolutely. previously. And you know what, the RCA actually, when I was going back to see like who said what early on, like who was starting to, you know, talk about what we need to be alarmed about. The RCA actually had one of the earliest um, yes. uh, social media posts on February 28th. They um, they actually issued some guidance on mikvah attendance, which I thought was really early and a great indication that they're concerned and that they're monitoring the situation and that they want to keep the community safe. And I was just so happy to see that. So the RCA like deserves major props as well. All right, so I want to move on to uh, a couple of other things. Uh, we, we spoke about Minyanim. Um, I want to get into people who are are just at the point where they, they, they need to get out. They need to they need to talk yeah. to people. So people getting together, small groups of people, uh, family, maybe uh, pockets of friends, bubbles that they create for themselves. Exactly. Um, people outside in a yard. If you were to say people are going to do that anyway, I'm not telling. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that you're giving permission to do that. Uh -huh, but let's uh -huh. say people are going to do that anyway. What are some of the precautions that, that you definitely have to take? So quarantine fatigue is very real um, and there are risks, mental health risks, uh, social isolation. There's a, there's a lot of reasons why people are really, really struggling. We're in month three, I think, at this point. So it's very fair that since the surge ended, 
that people want to start getting out. They want to see their loved ones. They want to see family members. They want to see a friend. Uh, their kids need to play. So these are very fair questions and they deserve fair answers. Um, here's the ultimate answer. Nothing is truly safe right now. Okay. It's, it's, it's just, it's just the answer. Okay. Right now there is risk. If you don't, if, if we don't know if immunity is conferred and we don't know if you've been sick and we don't know if you can catch it again, your children playing with the neighbor's children can pick up the virus and possibly transmit it to someone who wasn't sick before. Um, or you could be an asymptomatic carrier and cough on your bubby. So there is still a huge amount of risk. The risk did not go away at all. What has changed is that our healthcare system can now cope with it. So what I like telling people, and there have been memes to this effect, is that the surge being over or the reopening of our society slowly doesn't mean the risk is gone. It means we have a bed in the ICU for you if you need it. Okay, right. and, I, and I think that's very important for people to realize because a lot of people do feel like, oh, the risk is over. Most of us had it, so most of us are immune. Those are a lot of assumptions that may end up being true but until we know that for a fact, it's just too risky to assume that that's the case for right now. So my, the way I'm living right now is trying to create small pockets or pods or bubbles because I also need to see people. My children have been in for three months and have not played with anyone. Um, you know, the most they've been out is playing on the front of the block with a mask on without children, you know, with each other or just bicycle riding. So we do need to start opening up and it needs to be thoughtful, but it also needs to be with an awareness of the inherent risk. So when a friend of mine texted me and said, all the neighborhood children are playing, do you feel like I can finally let my kids play? And I said, if it's the same children that they may be playing with for the next week or two or three or four, then it's probably not a terrible idea at this time. And he said, but I don't think they've had coronavirus yet. Could it be that they're carrying it and may give it to my children? And I said, yes. And that's the risk. And you need to be aware of that. And you need to decide if that's a risk you're willing to live with right now. And since most people come out of it, I would say for many people to decide that they're okay with socializing again a little bit and allowing their children to, to, to socialize, it's a reasonable risk that they're choosing to take. But what's not reasonable is then exposing others and letting others get sick because you chose to accept that risk. Right. So while you might allow your kids to play with neighbors, if they're gonna be outside of that pod, like let's say you extend your family circle to be your immediate family, your next door neighbor, and the two kids on the block. And you're gonna allow them to continuously be within those 10 people. If you're gonna be with other people, you need to mask your children and you need to be masked, okay? Because just because you accept risk onto yourself does not make it acceptable for you to increase other people's risk. So my children wear a mask every time we leave the house. If they're playing with the neighbor in front of the house, I let them not have their mask on because it's right in front of my apartment door um, and it's just two children that are playing together and I'll give them that break. And I feel like that's really how people need to think about this. Everything boils down to a risk benefit analysis. And right now for many people, that benefit of socializing might outweigh their perceived risk. But you can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. We're not out of the danger zone at all. And we still have many vulnerable community members. And you don't know if they've had the virus or not. You don't know if they're immune or not. We don't know all these things. So masking up is the most important step you can take right now, especially as we start to open up and the virus may recirculate again. So protecting your neighbors, wearing masks everywhere. I hear people say, well, it's really uncomfortable. Well, then don't go out that much. I mean, I was, right. I went, I, I've gone walking in, in Prospect Park a couple times this week because the weather was so nice. And I wear the mask for the, my entire walk and there are joggers not wearing a mask. Now I, I'm sure that it's very difficult to jog if your breathing is a little limited, but if they're jogging right past my ear and blowing <laughs> right in my face, I find that terribly unacceptable. And right. if you can't jog without a mask, maybe you shouldn't be jogging in public. Maybe you need to find a treadmill or a closed environment or walk if that enables you to wear a mask. And people don't like infringements on their civil liberties. And of course, we're seeing that play out all over the media. Um, I'm not a fan of that. I'm never a fan of risking other people's lives because of your personal concerns or your personal beliefs. So I think people need to make decisions for themselves, for their buddies, for their parents who are socially isolated for so long and are just, just can't do it anymore to expand their pods and their bubbles and build a second layer, like another geder, you know, another layer of protective, um, you know, protective circle around a larger circle, but you can't make that decision for others and just allow your family or your loved ones or your children to do that. That's funny because you mentioned about the civil liberties. I've never in, I've never been 
of the opinion that the government, we much vaccines, government should be forcing vaccines on you, mm-hmm. but they can place restrictions. If you don't get your vaccine, then you can't go to public school. Sorry, that this, this is public school. This is our. This is we run this place. You just can't come in here if you don't get it. Just it, like you, you have have you can stay at home. You can you you can have homeschooling, but if you're not gonna if you're not gonna vaccine, you, you can't come here. If you're not gonna vaccine, a business can say you can't come into my place of business. I know doctors have said if you're not gonna vaccine, I'm gonna stop seeing you. I know that that's so. Private businesses, I think, really have to step up here. I think schools could do that, and schools. And I want to get into right now, if you have a little bit more time, uh-huh. uh, camps. Um, sure. So can I just backtrack for one second, sure. just to throw out a really interesting fact? Because a lot of people will say, "Well, you're violating my civil liberties. You're violating the Constitution <laughs> and my constitutional rights." Actually, in 1905, in a Supreme Court case of Jacobson versus Massachusetts, a gentleman refused the smallpox vaccine and was fined, and he sued the state for mandating something that he thought violated his civil rights. And the Supreme Court found that in times of war and infectious disease, individual rights can be uh, limited if your behavior will harm others. So we're not really violating anything. We're just asking you to follow common sense rules and not hurt people. But yes, let's talk about- So so I'll just respond to that one thing. And and if you want to respond. So I I fancy myself as a libertarian. Uh So that might've been the ruling. I just don't agree with that ruling. Uh, uh, so that's that's just where I stand. If that's the, the if that's the law of the harm, land, though, that's I the thought law that's of what land. you just said. I'm sorry. I thought I thought I thought we agreed though that in terms of harm, that the 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 the, the, the government can put limitations to prevent you from spreading disease. Yes, but like, a, fine, a fine wouldn't be with one infectious of them. disease. Oh really? What yeah. would what would a better option be? Uh, not allowed to go into public areas. Um, oh, that would be ideal, but yeah, I'm not so, sure if that's enforceable. But uh, right, that's what I'm saying. That, that, that you put right. the you put the you put the law in place, and if you're caught, then it's a problem. Um, right. No, no, right. no. I can, I th- I, th- I think we agree that when it comes to harming neighbors, that there are yes. that we are allowed to remove some of your rights if you're Absolutely. being openly. And you know, there, there was this case of someone who knowingly had HIV and knowingly uh, infected other people without any kind of way to protect them. And he that that's not acceptable. That was a, that was a, a, a legal problem. He wasn't allowed right. to do that. So uh, we have those um, instances. But yeah, moving yes. forward. So let's we, we I mean, I, I can clarify those things at another time. If somebody has a question, you can reach out to me on Twitter. Um, but uh, camps. Uh, Sullivan County is the county and bungalows, I guess we'll lump them in together. Sullivan County mm-hmm. is the county in New York State with the most uh, camps and bungalows. They are also uh-huh. in the same region as like Muncie, it's the uh, Rockland County um, area. So they uh, started coming out of uh, to stage one earlier this week or at the end of last week. Mm-hmm. So it's entirely possible, I did the math before this, it's entirely possible that if they go through all of the stages of of, re- of requirements by the state, they will be through them by the middle of July. And the same thing holds true for Nassau <coughs> County. So uh, I don't know what it means what we do after we've gone through these three stages. Um, and obviously, mm-hmm. you can always regress back into the previous stage if you don't meet the, right. the metrics. But hypothetically, let's say we're we're in the last stage or we're past the last stage, um, or even if we're not, the likelihood of, of camps opening this summer, uh, bungalow colonies, what they're gonna be doing or what you, in your opinion should be doing. Oh my goodness. Um, I'll be very honest, I don't know. I truly right. don't know. And that is kind of why I've been pushing for recommendations and guidelines that are free of any kind of interference that can sway our infectious disease experts or other public health experts who are trying to make that decision without that kind of pressure stemming from any community. Um, And I am not saying to close camps and I'm not saying to keep camps open. I'm saying that I really want to trust the recommendations that emerge. But when you have people lobbying for things or sending out change.org petitions, open our summer camps, that's not how I want those decisions made. And I, I understand that maybe I'm a little naive in the process. And of course, other people are always involved in these things. And someone um, uh, tweeted at me that, you know, there are, you know, lawyers need to be involved in these decisions. What, if, what happens, you know, if things get litigious because states are open or, uh, I'm sorry, because camps are open or, you know, people start getting infected or things like that. Um, so you, I understand the need for groupthink and, and coming up with a decision that's best for a community and a region. 
I, I just don't know if that's how those decisions are being made. And what I don't understand is how a lot of non-Jewish or modern Orthodox camps are making the decision to close because that they have found that that's the safest thing to do. What makes me concerned and just not understand is how are others choosing to open the camps? How are they analyzing the data or the recommendations in a way that's different and allows for that risk of spread? And I know everyone's saying, well, there's going to be no visiting Sunday, no leaving campgrounds, masks will be in place, enforced social distancing will be staggering pickups. Who's going to be enforcing all that? That's really, really difficult to do with children in a camp. I mean, are you going to be having a dedicated person that will be like the monitor that's roaming the camps and, you know, kind of walking around with the bullhorn, making sure people are doing that the whole time? Okay, I'd feel a little better sending my daughter to summer camp if I knew that there's a designated person whose job it is to ensure that all these rules are being followed. I understand the risk won't be zero, but at least responsible steps will be taken and the risk will be mitigated. And we need, we know children need structure, need to run, need to socialize. I, I, you know, and, and adults do too. To go back to work, you know, absolutely adults do too. And, and adults need to go back to work. We haven't even spoken about that part. I mean, right. that, that's probably the most important thing right now. You know, the economy and the mental health of people. There's so many things to take in mind. Right. But what I'm not seeing, at least from an ultra-Orthodox perspective, is anyone taking this that seriously and also being really intellectually honest and telling us, well, here are the rules, but we know that our community could be lax and we know that these rules will be difficult. So here's how we recommend making sure they get followed. I'm not seeing that. And that's what worries me. And that's what upsets me because as, 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 a, as an Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox Jewish community, What's more important than September starting and us not letting our kids all home and infecting our bubbies and zadies and, and, and parents? We, we've, we've lost people in their 20s and 30s. So that kind of really careful consideration and not just the blanket, thank you, Governor Cuomo, for allowing Minion to open. Um, okay, it's a good thing to dive in, in the Minion. People miss that. But let's, let's do it really, really, really safely. And don't just tell me, well, we've consulted with infectious disease experts. That's, that's a right. non-answer. So... Yeah, there's a lot more I wish we would be seeing right now. Okay, so quickly, because we're not going to be, it's too early to tell about next school year, because yeah. that's the other thing that everybody's on mind. And actually, uh, next week, not, not the, the week after this episode is released, we're going to be talking uh, to a former school administrator about tuition and all that stuff that everybody's thinking about. But in terms mm-hmm. of a school year, and we can't know yet what we're going to be doing. But my question to you is, how early might we know if it's safe to open? Like all things do go according to how well they possibly could. How early do you think we can get the, no- the, the news that, hey, you know what? We're gonna open full, full go next year. Oh gosh, I, I don't even wanna think about that. Don't I don't even wanna I, think about I, that. I th- I, you know what? I think that so much can happen over the next two or three months that mm-hmm. I feel like it's kind of premature to just, you know, try to see the future. Um, and as, as much as, I, I want my children in school and I know they need to be in school for so many reasons. I, I just want to make sure that it can be done in a way that doesn't hurt other members of the community or even communities outside our community because we don't live in a bubble, you know? Um, so I, I, I feel like I want to just, I like data. I just, I like numbers. Um, I don't always apply too much, uh, you know, credence to them initially because I think you need to wait and see what truly is emerging and look for patterns and look for um, how to interpret them in ways that, that, that jive with what makes sense. But I, I, I really would prefer to wait before um, making okay. any assumptions. Uh, I, I, I've just been thinking about certain, like that's. I know you say you're trying to think about it. That's literally all I've been thinking about. Um, I can't. Yeah, I know. I get I it. I get it. I get it. Um, we're yeah. we're, we're going to be running into a bunch of different issues coming up. I mean, we, we're not even going to be able to get a chance to talk about uh, Yom Nerim, Sukkot being actually probably the most, the, the best social distance holiday yes. outside most of the time. I, I, I had this thought probably since the beginning of April, if what happens if the, the week where we start really to come out is like Tisha B'Av and all of a sudden like, oh, we're all celebrating because we're supposed to be happy and then we have to do Tisha B'Av. Um, that would like, be very bizarre. These, these are type of the things that I've been thinking about, like what what's going on. So we're, we're all going to be mourning while we're secretly happy. But uh, those are about the things. Is there anything else that you'd like to impart on us before we say goodbye? Um, uh, I think we discussed so many different topics. Um, yeah. I just want to say that what, what's really been uh, encouraging to me and, and 
just always brings me right back to the community is that we've been going through a really, really rough time. People have been losing people. People are suffering social isolation, um, loss of income, so many things. It's just always so nice to see the community coming together with whatever resources they have and whatever and when they can and how they can. And that's just something that I personally always look look to um, to kind of keep me going during right. during really rough times. And um, as a provider outside the community in a hospital and also in the community where I've been seeing patients together with Hatsala and other organizations trying to help people keep home during this, it's always just a privilege to be part of this community where uh, it can be so frustrating sometimes when you want them to handle things differently, but there's also such a sense of goodness that you see that's just always so positive for me. Absolutely. All right. Is there any way where we can find you on social media? Anything that you want to plug? Well, I'm usually pretty vocal on Facebook. That's okay. my preferred platform. I've recently been on Twitter. It's not my preferred place, um, but you can find me on Twitter. Okay. Um, and and for ch- pictures of my children, you can go to Instagram. But <laughs> <laughs> not not, not and, the most interesting. And is there a place where we can find more about the vaccine task force? Oh, absolutely. We have a website. It's uh, www.msinitiative, E-M-E-S, as in the Hebrew word MS, uh, initiative.org. Um, and we actually have a lot of uh, scientific information related to vaccines. We also have an upcoming magazine coming out, but it will take a little while. It's about a 150 page manuscript on the immune system, uh, how vaccines work, it addresses and debunks all of the common and even not so common myths related to vaccines and pharmaceutical companies and safety in general. Um, so I'm really excited about that, but that's a little bit further down the line. All right. Libby Marcus, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, anytime. My thanks to Blimey Marcus for joining me this week. Because it's what I do for a living, I really love talking about the different aspects of the healthcare system, especially with someone who has such a passion for the topic like Blimey has. If you're interested in hearing other episodes of ours on healthcare topics, you can check out our very first episode entitled Keeping Healthy While Keeping Shabbos, or episode 12 in which we discuss genetic testing. Please remember to stay with us after the credits if you're interested in hearing more about the fallacies of vaccinations. As always, call to the the Jewish Living Podcast is produced by Swirly Pikus. Our theme song is The Band by A.B. Rottenberg from Journeys 4. You can email the show at jewishlivingpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Jewish underscore living. The Jewish Living Podcast is recorded in conjunction with the Queen's Jewish Link. As promised, here's the rest of the conversation on vaccines. Now, for people that truly understand how vaccines work, um, it's very rare for vaccines to actually injure you. And I know anti-vaxxers will uh, think I'm insane for saying that. However, if you look at the science, we know that it's true. There have been a tiny handful of vaccines that have been pulled off the shelves over the last 50 years due to safety concerns. The oral polio virus vaccine, which we know was risky, it saved millions and millions of lives by preventing polio in most people, but a tiny percentage of people did catch polio from the vaccine because it is, it is a live virus. And that's no longer used in the United States for many years. It is used in third world countries because the risk benefit analysis for those countries is that it's still better to provide immunity to a majority of the population from polio even if there's a likelihood that a tiny fraction of them will catch polio from it. So that's a risk benefit analysis made in uh, certain countries in Africa, I believe Pakistan and India. So the live vaccines are the ones I would be worried for. If the coronavirus vaccine was a live vaccine, it would be a legitimate risk to be concerned that if you get that vaccine, it will trigger a full-blown case of coronavirus in people. And even though most people emerge from it, there's still high complication rate, high death rate. So this is not going to be a live vaccine. So that concern is not a worry for me. Long-term disability or long-term health problems that emerge from vaccines are almost not heard of. Most vaccine side effects are uh, local, you know, limited to the arm, soreness, um, sometimes a little bit of GI symptoms, some stomach upsetness, you know, something like that. 
And a lot of people will encourage you to look at uh, the VAERS system, which is the system uh, built into place where any person in the United States, provider or layperson, can file a report and say, this is the vaccine I received and this is what happened. Okay. And people who are anti-vaccine look at those reports, which are publicly available, and they'll say, look at this. 40,000 reports were filed this year. What does that tell you? And what they'll extrapolate from that is that 40,000 people were injured by vaccines. But this data system is not meant to be worked out that way. This data system is meant as an alert. And I'll give you an example. When the rotavirus uh, vaccine came out in the 1990s, that's to prevent the rotavirus, which is a gastrointestinal infection, which leaves infants often very dehydrated and some infants die. Many, many infants were, had to be hospitalized for that. They're losing fluids and infants can't maintain that. So the vaccine came out, people gave it, and then a lot of exactly the same reports were filed of intussusception, which is when your bowels, which is long tubes, kind of telescope into itself. When the people who follow this data noticed that, they immediately pulled it off and realized that there was that risk and a new vaccine was developed, which did not cause that anymore. We almost call this the, the uh, phase four. It's the post-marketing licensure, the post-marketing studies that we do after it's approved, it's safe in a thousand or 2000 people, it's effective in one or 2000 people, it's approved for release, but something that you need to give to a million people was not evident on what you gave to a thousand people. So this system, the VAER system, is what's meant to catch this when you're giving it to large scale communities and cities. And that is exactly how it works. And it works really, really, really well because they were alerted to this exact same symptom happening. But when people will alert the system to their personal assumptions, like I got this vaccine and I was nauseous for two days afterwards, or my son got this vaccine and he had fever the next two days. Well, that's actually expected and that's normal. And that's a sign of an immune response. If you actually take the VAERS data and break it down and stop me from getting too deep. That's fine. But Okay, if you, actually, if you actually take the VAERS data and analyze it the way you're supposed to without premature biases, without looking for something and making the data kind of fit you because science is prone to all kinds of manipulation, what you actually find is 90% is of them are not serious. So whether it did happen, whether it's a result of that, it's something that's not serious, it's resolvable, it's nausea, it's vomiting. Sometimes it's someone passing out, which can happen from an injection. It's kind of like a, a vasovagal response or, you know, something like that. Um, so that's, that's one issue. Uh, the other 10% or so of serious things are always investigated by the CDC. Because if I file a report that, God forbid, my child passed away, or they were hospitalized for an excessive period of time, and I believe it's due to the vaccine, they will look into that. They will look at autopsy results. If there was a death involved, they will look at hospitalizations. Okay. Right. They have almost never, and I would have to go back and see if I can actually find a few good examples of when they did find a connection. And to my knowledge, after studying this for two, three years, they have not. Um, they have almost never found that connection. Okay. Um, people will say, I gave my child, you know, the DTaP vaccine and my child died of SIDS. Very often what medical examiners find is that there was a case of sleeping in the same bed. Uh, the child was found with all the blood um, kind of in their face, which indicates they were laying flat and the blood was dependent and flowed to their face because they were face down in the mattress. Um, other things that would explain it much more likely than the vaccine, which when they look at, let's say, SIDS data and, say who, and see who got the DTaP vaccine in the last couple of weeks and who didn't, it's always no, there's always no connection between them. So this is how the VAERS data works, okay? And I think this should be really, really reassuring to people who have concerns about vaccines, that the majority of reports that people file are not um, serious. And the second majority, if I had to list the, the causes, are actually arm injuries by inappropriate administration. Hmm. Okay, so a lot of providers, and this is actually a fascinating topic amongst people who are passionate about vaccines, and I am not one of those that finds it that interesting, talking about exactly where in the upper arm slash shoulder a vaccine should be administered. And some hmm. people have gotten really bad arm injuries by injecting intramuscularly into a space in the arm or muscle or, or synovial space that really shouldn't be injected. So that's legitimate, that's valid, and I wouldn't blame anyone for being really upset if they develop a frozen shoulder injury because of inappropriate administration. But that has but, the fault of the vaccine. But that is not exactly, that does not mean your vaccine was dangerous. So I think there's just so many things to consider when we look at how vaccine safety is developed in the pre, you know, distribution phase and even after it's just distributed. And that's why I'm really confident in a vaccine, you know, being approved. And people keep telling me, well, I'll get it after you get it. 
And I keep telling them, we'll get a ticket and get in line because I am <laughs> planning on getting it the second it comes out. <laughs>